0: Welcome to the Calvary Baltimore Sermon Podcast with our senior pastor, Josh Plantholt. Great to have you with us. Calvary meets in the Joppa Falston area, north of Baltimore. If you're nearby, come join us. For all the details, go to our website at calvarychapelbaltimore.org. And now, here's this week's teaching. Happy Lord's Day. I'd like
1: to call your attention this morning to the eighth chapter of Revelation, Revelation. It is a miracle. We are going to be out of this chapter in three teachings, so really moving. <laughs> Today, as we look at the sounding of the first two trumpets, followed by the plagues, today's text looks an awful lot like a world disaster movie. Uh, <laughs> And if you've ever heard teachings on this, that uh, is typically how it goes. They talk about volcanoes being thrown into the water and all sorts of stuff. My my goal here, however, today, is to make sure we don't lose focus on what Jesus is showing. Uh, We want to make sure we don't lose focus on what Jesus is actually showing us. You see, one of the things that can happen as we study the book of Revelation is we can get Judgment fatigue. We've already seen seven seals. Now we're going to see seven trumpets. Next, we're going to see seven bowls. And after a while, you can kind of go, okay, I get it. God's mad and judgment is coming to the wicked. After a, a, a judgment, after judgment, after judgment, we can get there, but we don't want to give in to that. Remember what this book is it is the revelation. Of Jesus Christ. And Jesus isn't showing us all these judgments so that primarily we can see the pain that is coming to the wicked. No. Jesus is showing us these things so that we may fuller see and understand him. And this includes the Father. Remember, I and the Father are one. And after every seal, and after every trumpet, and after every bowl, God is telling us something about himself. And that is that, yes, the, the triune God is the God most high. We, we need to see God's power here. And yes, God is powerful and he is mighty and he has a rat stored up for the day of judgment and our God is a God of justice. Which is why so often laid out in the Old Testament the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But also, I'm going to propose today that he is also a God of unsurpassed mercy. That every bowl, that after every bowl, there there is a part of us that should be amazed and captivated by the fact that there's anyone still left alive. (laughs) Right? Like, why? Why is anyone left at all? And we know scripturally it's because God desires all to be saved. Here is a key to understanding the judgment sections of this book, that judgments keep coming as long as repentance is available. And the judgments come to their conclusion when not one more sinner is to be saved. And we will see this in chapter 9. We're going to see this in chapter 16. God is longing for the repentance of sinners. And so, yes, God is demonstrating his power to the world, but also he's rebuking, correcting, and softening hearts to cut to the heart of sinners to bring them into his kingdom. So there is so much mercy at play behind this disaster movie, so to speak. Now, before we jump into today's text, I'm going to talk about something that you thought we'd never get out of, the plagues of Egypt. If you guys remember, that's where I started my ser—my first preaching to the to the church. We spent a Sunday on each of the plagues, which you, I remember on like plague nine, you guys were like, oh no, we're never getting out of the plagues, but we're back in. Um... <laughs> One of the observations we should have about the seven trumpets of Revelation is that they are very similar to the ten plagues of Egypt, all the way back at the book of Exodus. Now, the seven trumpets do not follow the exact order of the Egyptian plagues, and some people try to make them fit, it doesn't fit. But, but several of the plagues of Egypt are included in the seven trumpets. For example, the first trumpet has hail and fire, like the Egyptians', the Egypt's seventh plague. And typically hail and fire don't go together. This is a very purposeful thing. The second trumpet, the sea turns to blood as did the Nile in the first plague. And down the line it goes. And this is so interesting. I had so much fun this week looking at this because if you're familiar with the story of the Exodus, then you know that each of the plagues of Egypt served as a rebuke to Pharaoh and the Egyptian people. For example, when you start the book of Exodus, and the opening of the Exodus, the Pharaoh and his counselors, there came a new Pharaoh who did not remember Joseph. You remember that? And then it says they saw how many kids the Hebrews were having. And then they gave the order to the midwives to kill the, to kill the babies. And then the midwives feared God and lied to the government, which was counted as righteousness. But anyways, um, they, they go, these babies pop out so fast. We can't kill them quick enough, you know, like you know, a little whack-a-mole. And, and so Pharaoh ordered, Exodus 1, that the Hebrew babies were to be killed by throwing them into the Nile River. Really horrific picture. Now, when God, through Moses, brings about the first plague of Egypt, what does he do? He turns the Nile to blood. Well, the reality is, to God and his people, the Nile was already a place of blood. God just made it visible to the Egyptians. And so in the first plague, he made it so. And the last plague, the death of the firstborn of Egypt. God was rebuking the unbelieving Egyptians and Pharaoh for the death of the Hebrew children. The, the, the punishment was in, like, it was in response, to the, it was in equal proportion to their sin. Each plague served as a rebuke to the, to, 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 from God to the Egyptians because of their sins. And the plagues in many ways mirrored their sins. Well, so too are the trumpets. God is rebuking specific sins of the untime, unbelieving world, and we are going to want to keep an eye out for this. Now, not just a rebuke, but the plagues of Egypt also served a theological purpose, and this one's a little bit more well-known, idol smashing. You see, the Egyptians worshipped many gods, And as each of the plagues of Egypt was happening, God, Yahweh, was proving that the Hebrews' God was greater than the Egyptian God. As Yahweh was turned the Nile to blood, it was proof that Yahweh was greater than the God of the Nile. And when God had command of the frogs, it was proof that God was greater than the god Egyptian God of the frogs. And the cattle, the cattle, and the flies, the flies, and the hail, the sky, the the sky. And And through the plagues, God slowly proves that he is the greatest deity. He is the God most high. And this comes to a climax, to a crescendo, with the ninth plague being that God and Moses blocked out the sun. Yahweh was greater than almighty Ra to the Egyptians. And then finally, the 10th plague, the Passover. The greatest Egyptian deity besides Ra, there was only one other, and that was Pharaoh. And he was, the, he was Jacob's ladder, so to speak. He was, he was the bridge between divine and earthly. And he kept all the gods at bay. And when the angel of the Lord swept over the land of Egypt on the night of the Passover, who died? Pharaoh's son. He was proving that Yahweh's line was greater than the line of the Pharaoh's. And finally, that was the final God that needed to break before he said, go, leave. Now, as we we read through these trumpets... That are drawing and building upon the ten plagues of Egypt, we wanna look out for the same themes that were in the Exodus. God is not in the, God, you know, God wrote every book in this Bible, <laughs> all 66, and He put them all together for a reason. It's not so that we can read each one in isolation, but that we can read them together as a whole. And so when God decides to place these trumpets and build them upon the scaffolding of the ten plagues of, of Egypt, He's doing something, He's connecting themes for us. And so as we go through each trumpet, we're going to see that it is both a rebuke and it combats idolatry. They tear down false gods and show that God is greater than whatever systems, government, gods that the end times unbelieving world holds to. So as, as, so we have a lens, we have a filter through which to read these trumpets. And it's not speculation. It's not how big was the volcano to create the certain splash. And if a nuclear bomb went up, we're not doing that. We're, we're, we're going to read it through scriptural eyes as best as we can. So, Let's get a running start. Our our text starts at verse six, but we're gonna we're gonna get a running start at verse one. Coffee break. <clears throat> I got iced coffee today. You're in trouble. <clears throat> when the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. I love that. Just <laughs> about a half hour. Um, Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God with seven trumpets. Do you think the Bible likes sevens? Seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer. And he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And we we have some of the prayers of the saints from chapter 6. What was their prayer? How long, O Lord? How long until you avenge our blood? They're crying. We know the prayers here are for justice. The martyred church was crying out for justice. Again, drawing upon the opening themes of, of, of the Exodus, Exodus 2.24, it says God heard the prayers of his people, which meant he was ready to respond. Now here, right before the trumpets, God hears the prayers of the people. And we'll see now Revelation 8 plagues and justice is coming. Verse 4. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder and rumblings and flashes of lightning and an earthquake. I love that. Cherry on top. Uh, Now verse 6. And an earthquake. Uh, now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. You know, I get stuck on things. I go, what does that mean to prepare to blow a trumpet? Uh, well, I, I Googled it. Uh, it means to place it to your lips. Meaning, I know, my brilliance is unsurpassed. Uh, no, I, but I'm like, what is that? Do you stretch? You know, what does that mean? Well, the seven angels took the trumpets and placed them to their lips, and they're prepared to blow them, which tells me something. These things are going to happen in relatively quick succession. The trumpeter doesn't put the trumpet to his lips because he wants to wait six months. They're ready to blow them. So we know that these things are going to come pretty quickly, Uh, which can you imagine the horror if you're on earth during these things? Because... Boy, you just ran out of drinking water, and here come the scorpion locust things. You know, it's this is not not this is this is this is rough. Uh, verse seven, and the first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire, bad enough. But then it says, mixed with blood, and these were thrown upon the earth. You know, wouldn't it be? It would be one thing if it was just hail and fire. <laughs> But like in Egypt, this hail and fi- this hail was—I'm sorry—it would be one thing if it was just hail, but it's hail mixed with fire, just like the plagues of Egypt. And so we have literal ice and fire being thrown on the earth. But to go a step further, this is ice and fire mixed with blood. Now, a lot of people like to look at the plagues of Egypt and try to explain that the Nile turned to blood because a certain coral shedded a thing. And then, then, you know, the, the plague of darkness, obviously that was a sandstorm. And the sun blocked out because, you know, a certain cloud coverage. And they try to explain away all of these things. Uh, like the Egyptians drowned in a foot, of wa- a foot of water. Sure, that's as much of a miracle as parting the sea. Uh, you know, so uh, again, again, you know, but people do the same thing with Revelation. They try to find naturalist explanations. Like, well, if you get certain astronomical signs and fire it can be hot and it's. No, no, this is. You could explain this if this was just hail. You can't explain it if it's hail mixed with fire, and you really can't explain it if it's hail mixed with fire mixed with blood. But now let's catch the rebuke. The Egyptians threw the Hebrews into the Nile. They shed innocent blood. And God responded by turning the Nile to blood. Now here, the unbelieving world sheds the blood of God's church. So now God is raining blood upon the whole world. This is a rebuke. In response, it's a mirrored response to what they have done. And this blood, this blood from the context, doesn't seem to be a generic general blood. God doesn't have a blood bank in heaven going, can't wait to use this one day. (laughs) This seems to be the literal blood of the saints. This may be our blood. If the unbelieving world will spill the blood of heaven's people, the blood of heaven's people will rain down on the world. And this blood comes from Yahweh's judgment. It comes with Yahweh's judgments with both his hail and his fire. And yes, with this rain, the earth, the trees and the grass will be soaked with blood. But the reality is, it already was. The blood of the martyrs raining upon the earth is God showing us, showing them what the earth has and will become in the last days, a place spilled, a place of spilled and shed blood. And what idol is this smashing? I have no idea. <laughs> but because of these events, because these events will happen in the future. We can't say with certain clarity what these plagues will mean to these very specific people and their false gods. Uh, the closest we can get is in chapter 6. Do you remember when the judgment started to happen uh, with the seals? Do you remember we're shown one time where the unbelieving world prays? Does anyone remember where that was? It was nature. They cried out to the earth wow. to save them. So maybe the end times world, unbelieving world, will be so wrapped up in the global religion of climate change. And we we already see some of this today, don't we? I mean, we're already told to have less kids because of climate. <laughs> Tax businesses because of climate. Eat less nutritious food because of climate. I hate to tell you, I'm eating steak till I die. <laughs> don't own pro- which may be in an hour. Uh, uh, don't own property because of climate. Listen, w- w- And here's here's the pushback to that, right? Because Christians can hear that and go, great, and throw their Chick-fil-A out the window when they're driving. No! We are to be good stewards. We're to take care of the earth and recycle and not litter. Of course, we're to do all these things. But we cannot and should not sacrifice or reduce our families on the altar of climate change. So, Thinking of the end times, maybe all of this earth and sea that will be destroyed in these trumpets will be to smash the false gods and ideology of climate worship. I have no idea, but just my thought. However, what I do know is that the coals from the altar, heavenly altar, have been thrown to the earth. Remember that? They put the coals in the censer and through the censer. And now what do we see on the earth? We see fire and we see blood. Fire and blood have been added to the coals. Now, if we want to think about the book of Exodus again, the tabernacle. After the blood, uh, when, when the sacrifice was brought to the altar to the coals of the altar. After blood was splashed against the four corners of the altar, the priest would stoke the coals with and fire on the altar and get it really hot. And then he would place the sacrifice on the altar. And because it was so hot and it was seasoned and sprinkled with blood, immediately the, altar, the sacrifice would burn up and turn to smoke and ash because it was so steaming hot. Uh, it would burn in really high heat. So if we keep the Old Testament sacrificial system in mind here, we know that that death is coming. The earth has been prepared like the altar at the tabernacle, and now the sacrifice is ready to be burned. Um, Something to keep in mind. Verse 7, the first angel blew his trumpet and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood, and these were thrown upon the earth, and a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all green grass was burned up. So The altar was made ready, and now things are being burned. The the first trumpet, especially as we connect it with the fire and the hail from the Exodus, the first trumpet seems to be burning up the world's food supplies. Uh, Two-thirds of the trees survive uh, the hail, but all of the green grass is burnt up. Notice it doesn't say all grass. It says green grass. So this is somewhere in the world that is lush, green, crop-producing at that moment. And in an instant all gone. And whatever this first trumpet looks like, as it's happening, there there, there is some speculation. But what is clear is that, again, the food supply seems to be gone. The grazing grass of all cattle and livestock is gone. And two-thirds of the trees are gone. And if you remember, during the, the judgment of the seals, remember the trees were meant to be unharmed. Don't harm the olive or the grape trees. Here, the trees are allowed to be burned up. So again, there's an escalation of judgment that's happening as the book goes on. And think about yourself. Do things ever not go good for you in some seasons? And you go, come on, God. And then they get worse <laughs> and worse and worse. And then at some point you call, you uncle, I'm done. God, what do you want me to do? I'm sorry. I'm sorry, right? And then you look back later in your life and go, how dumb was I? I had to wait until the sixth head kick until I finally listened. Well, here God is incrementally increasing the plagues. And slowly, the, the, the most slightly more hard-hearted are coming to repentance. Okay, let's turn up the heat. And then a little bit more come to repentance. And so he's turning up the heat, so to speak. And then verse 8. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. What is this great mountain burning with fire? I have no idea. Why are you asking me? Uh, But a lot of people think it's a volcano. Uh, You know, I just don't. I don't like it. Uh, What what I think this is talking about is pagan sacrifice. If we want to think back all the way back to Revelation chapter 2, to the letter to the church of Pergamum. Pergamum was a city built on top of a mountain. And on top of that mountain, do you remember what was there? It was the throne of Zeus. It was Satan's throne. And at the center of Satan's throne, at the top of the mountain that the city of Pergamum was placed on top of, there was an altar there. And that was the very place where they killed Antipas. It was the very place where they burned Christians alive. So maybe in the last days, there is a mountain, an evil holy site where Christians will be martyred. And this is what God is going to pick up and throw into the sea. And again, this would explain then why the sea turns into blood, doesn't it? If the blood of the martyrs was spilled on this mountain, when this mountain's thrown into the water, it turns into the blood of the martyrs. It makes a heck of a lot more sense than a volcano to me. Uh, But anyways, verse 9. And a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. (laughs) And so two trumpets have been... You know what? I just caught this for the very first time. I wonder if that's a reference to Noah's Ark. Like this time even arcs won't be preserved. I don't know. It got me on a sidetrack. All right, so two trumpets have been blown and a third of the earth and a third of the sea has been destroyed. Next week, we're going to see a third of the sky and a third of space is destroyed. So the the world is coming under divine judgment for the death of God's people. That's what's happening. That's today's text. Uh, We got a whole lot for next week, but... That's it for now. So one thought, mercy. (laughs) Something that we cannot miss from today's passage is that the unbelieving world deserves to be consumed by our Father's wrath, totally. In heaven, Revelation 7, there are so many people killed for their faith that they were, what, innumerable. So much Christian blood has been spilled. So many Christians have been murdered that they can't even be counted in heaven. Yet, God in his immense mercy, his immeasurable kindness, he only judges a third of the earth. And a third of the sea. You know, so many people read today's passage and see the wrath. uh, Or or some heretically, they see God's wickedness in killing all those people. How could God's a moral monster? But myself, I see his long-suffering. I see his mercy. I see his abounding patience and grace and mercy to an unworthy people. Listen, if God raptured the church out of here today, Let's just, let's, just be, let's just be really kind and say a half a billion people are sucked out of here at once. Wouldn't you think the other seven and a half billion people would fall on their knees and go, Jesus is real. Ain't going to happen. And then he's going to pour out seven seals. And it's already in the book. They have the book. The book's not going anywhere. They're going to have it. And they're going to go, oh, that happened. Oh, that, that happened next. And you think the other 7 billion would go, Jesus is real. Ain't going to happen. You'd think after all this time, God would go, I'm done. I'm done with these people. But he doesn't. He doesn't. You see, in our sin, man is naturally, Romans 8, 7, at enmity with God. We're at odds with him totally. So when we see the story of the flood, can't we think in our sin nature, how could God flood the whole world? How could God kill all those puppies and all those kids and save only Noah and his family? That doesn't seem fair. But the reality is mankind had failed. No one deserved to be saved. The fact that God saved any of Earth's creation at all was an act of divine grace and mercy. I remember one time I was talking to uh, 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 someone. It was a young person uh, who was an atheist and they they sat there and they wagged their nose at me when they talked and how could God send anyone to hell? They thought they had the moral high ground on me. Uh, I said, that was a good question. I said, but you're asking the wrong one. The right question is how could God send anyone into heaven? To ask how could God send anyone to hell is built upon the false premise that mankind deserves heaven. We don't deserve heaven. None of us deserve heaven. We deserve wrath. We start all the way back at the beginning of our book in the garden. Adam and Eve, you know, they were our representatives. You know, don't you think, what is wrong with you? Don't eat that fruit. But they were the best of us, unfallen, uncorrupted, un, uh, untainted by sin, and they failed. In Adam and Eve, we failed. And you know, God, in Genesis chapter 2, he says, Adam, my son, the day you eat of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, you will die. Did he kill Adam that day? Instead, God said, I will raise up a seed amongst the woman. And he will crush the head of the serpent and you will, the, he will bruise your heel. From that moment, instead of God Thanatos killing Adam permanently, he's, he looks to his own only begotten son in heaven and he says, you're going to have to die for these people. He killed his own son for us. Loved ones, we failed. And God bailed us out. And then we see in the pre-flood world, right? We're kicked out of the garden. Don't you think we'd learn our lesson? There's Grandpa Adam talking about how good God was and the garden was we messed up. You think we would have went, boy, we better better behave. No, we went spring break crazy. And God had to flood the whole world. We failed. And then the post-flood world, God saved one family. Almost immediately, we build a tower of Babel because we're going to be like, God, we failed again, we learned nothing after God flooded the world. And then God raises up leaders and we failed. And then he gave us the law, couldn't keep it. And then he gave us judges and kings and they failed. And then God, in his abundant mercy, he came and he lived and he died. And he says, it's better that I depart so that I give you the spirit. He will be your helper. And now all all believers are indwelled with the spirit of God. How mind-blowing is that? And how often do we go "Mm," and fail? Every day. You know, I sin. I do. I eat too much bacon. And you, you sin. Ain't to break it to you every day. Maybe more than me. Uh, but I just sin. See? We all sin. We all fall short of the glory of God. We all fall short of deserving heaven. We all fall short of perfection. Every single day, every single one of us, we do not love God as we should. We do not give Him glory in all things as we should. None of us are worthy. None of us deserves God or His grace or His mercy or His Father or the Son or the Spirit or resurrection or eternal life. None of us deserves salvation or heaven. But this is the good news. Because Jesus bought for us these things. He purchased for us these things. Paul lays it out so beautifully, and I quote this about once a month, and I don't care. I'm going to quote it once a month till I die. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. You know what grace means? It's an unmerited gift. You didn't earn it. You didn't achieve it. It's not a participation trophy. God gave it to you because he decided to give it to you. The father loved us when we did not love him at all. Not even a scintilla. (laughs) We have no cause to boast when we get into heaven. And Jesus gave his life for us when we had no spiritual life at all. That's one of the reasons I love Ezekiel 36, the valley of dry bones. That's us. We weren't just a valley of dead people. It says they were old and dry bones. They were not just dead. They were dead, dead, dead bones. (laughs) We are spiritually as dead as a doorknob. And what did God say? Ezekiel prophesied to him. Give him the word, Ezekiel. He's like, okay. (laughs) And then slowly the bones come back together. We heard the good news. But still there was no life in them. And then what does God do? He fills them with his breath, his spirit. And then they were alive. Loved ones, this is the story of our salvation. While we were still dead, dead, dead. While we were still in sin, we were loved. He loved us when we were still in unbelief. And his mercy and his grace, God is so kind that he spanked us. (laughs) It is his love that broke us down. Have you ever found yourself, I'm done running? That's love that got you there. That wasn't in you. That's love that smashed our idols. That's grace that broke our pride. That's mercy that stopped our self-aggrandizing and at times rebuked us. And praise God, he let many of us hit rock bottom, mentally or physically. You ever been there? I'll put up two hands for that one. Praise God, he loves us enough to smash our idols. I'd be a 35, uh, what am I, 34? I'd be a 34 year old kid playing Halo right now if he didn't break me of my own childlikeness. Because salvation is not in Ra or some sun god, salvation is not to be found in Baal or Zeus or climate. <laughs> Or social activism or political party or looks or wealth or anything. It is Christ alone. It is is in faith because of Christ alone that we have life everlasting. So praise God. Are you a Maryland Maryland homeowner? (laughs) I'm a Maryland homeowner, okay. It's just I'm glad it's your phone that I can make fun of and not mine.
0: <laughs>
1: just a really ridiculous song comes up. One time I was on, you know, you don't need to know this, but I'm going to tell you anyways. We were in a prayer meeting at a pastor's conference and there were there were there were 1200 pastors in a room and it was like, okay, if anyone needs healing prayer for healing and everyone gets really quiet and some guy's phone goes off and it goes Pum! Some sugar on me oh at a pastor's conference. So he's got you beat. Uh. He's like, oh, oh no, no, no! Oh my goodness gracious! You know, I just kept thinking all week. Praise God, he smashes our idols. (laughs) Praise God for every inch of bruised pride. Thank God for every fiery dart he allowed through. Because God uses all of it for his children. Romans 8.28 says that he uses all things, all things for good for the life of his people. For what? To bring us to himself. To give us eternal life and peace with the Father. Charles Spurgeon, who's one of my heroes, he has a great line. He says, I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me up against the rock of ages. (laughs) (laughs) Loved ones, every wave, every storm that beats against you, it's like, oh, here comes another one. If they drive you closer to Christ then learn to see their eternal worth. For you will one day in glory, let me tell you, every arrow and wave that you caught, it is going to lead you into a song of praise. Every single ounce of suffering, thank you, God, you got me home. Thank you for that wolf that was nipping at my heels. It got me home. And as we close, here in Revelation and throughout this the judgments of this book, you know, again, some think, how could God burn a third of the world? And that's the wrong question. The right question is, how could God spare two-thirds of it? God is not the villain of this story here, loved ones. Oh, no, he is the hero. And the end times, unbelieving world like us, instead of God going, I've had enough of these people, when don't when will they learn? As believers, how many times do you fall back into the same stupid sin? Go, God, I know better than this. What, is the, what does the Bible say? Like a dog or a pig or a dog to its vomit, right? Instead of God saying, enough, wouldn't they learn after the first seven seals? I gotta blow seven trumpets now. I'm sick of the rebellion. I'm sick of the sin. I'm sick of evil. Enough! And instead of wiping out the whole world, instead of that, he takes only a third. And why? Mercy. You see, with every new seal, with every new trumpet, with every new judgment, we're going to see that God is leading sinners to repentance and salvation. And here is what's so cool. You you read about You know, all the saints sound like they're in heaven, doesn't it? And I saw an innumerable multitude. The 144,000, they they may have been murdered at this time. We don't know. And you think, okay, now God's just burning the world. But God's going to keep showing us over and over and over again. Like the 144,000, like the innumerable multitude, like the Christians. You know, by the time we get to Babylon, it says they are Christians in there what we see is God is adding to his church daily, even in this season. With every new trumpet, with every new judgment, with every new pandemic, COVID, the monkeypox apparently is going to kill us all now. With recession and war, God is using these things, leading sinners to repentance and salvation. And the reality is the grace and mercy that will be available at the end times is also here for us today. This is the good news. Jesus is telling us something about himself today. That Jesus came to save sinners. And that he loves us enough to pull us out of our sins. If you can learn one thing from today, Jesus loves you enough to say, I'm going to smash their idol and bring them home. And praise God he does that. Because that comes from an overwhelmingly, abundantly, lavishly, merciful heart. Because let me tell you, you so, someone spites me ten, to, 10 days in a row, I'm going, enough of them, I'm spitting in their soup or something, you know, but I wouldn't spit in anyone's, head. why am I thinking soup? I don't know, but it's hot and, I don't know, food, food. it's Food. <laughs> Yet every day his mercies are new. Yes. And every day, you know, there's an old saying the, the heart of a human is an idol factory. And every day it's like God wakes up and he clears the money changers of our heart. He flips over our idol tables and says, No more, no more. I want to read you a, a psalm as we go Psalm 145, verses eight and nine. The Lord is gracious and merciful slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. You know what that word steadfast means? Constant, daily, unwavering, unmoving. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. Let's pray. God, we love you. We we praise you. We thank you. We ask that you would be with us now. We ask that you would comfort us, those who need to be comforted. and God, where there are idols in our lives, not because we deserve it, but because you're a good God, we ask that you would smash them in a fantastic way. And God, those of us that are tired and running and have been clinging to the old. God, let your spirit press so mightily upon us that this is no way to live. But in you is life everlasting. Uh, we, we pray that if anyone needs special prayer, they they would come up here today during prayer worship and receive it. We thank you for the air conditioning that worked here today. God, we we pray for that bus that flipped over on ninety-five this morning. God, when when we see tragedy again, not to make light of it, we are in a sin-ridden world and no one hates death more than you. (laughs) It was never part of your plan. But God, somehow through through pain, through suffering, God, bring about glory. Use it. Use it for the advancement of the gospel. We do pray and be with these families that have lost people. Uh, God, help these things to help us to long for heaven just a little bit more we love you, God. We praise you. We thank you that you are a God of mercy. And we thank you that your grace is upon your people. Comfort us in your grace. We do pray. And all who agreed said, amen. Stand
0: and worship. Thanks for joining us for today's message from Calvary, Baltimore. Please keep in touch. Send us an email with your questions, prayer requests, or just to say hi. We'd love to hear from you. Our email address is calvary.faithlife at gmail.com. If you'd like to donate to support the work God is doing through Calvary Baltimore, go to calvarychapelbaltimore.org and click Donate Now. And if you're in the area, stop by on a Sunday morning. For directions and service times, go to our website at calvarychapelbaltimore.org. Finally, if you're unable to come see us in person, we also live stream on our website and on our Facebook page. We hope you've been blessed by this week's teaching. Until next time, keep drawing closer to God through the reading of His Word and join us again for the next Calvary Baltimore Sermon Podcast.